No one needs to be reminded how this started a year ago with news of a novel coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, followed by outbreaks in South Korea, Singapore, and Iran. By late February and early March, the disease was exploding in Europe. The mortality rate in Italy was shocking. Their healthcare systems were quickly overwhelmed and resorted to rationing. The first US outbreak appeared in Seattle. Soon after, on March 3rd, a man was admitted to Lawrence Hospital in Bronxville with COVID-19 and quickly proved to be part of a major outbreak in lower Westchester County. Within days, a new case rate in our region was taking off. By the second week in March, it became clear that even the enormous New York Presbyterian or NYP hospital system risked being overwhelmed. Never in my career had I given a moment's thought to the availability of masks, gowns, and gloves, and suddenly our supplies were close to exhaustion. For cases done during the week between March 9th and that Friday, my entire OR team did their best to enter and leave the room only once and use only one set of PPE per case. ED staff were struggling to get through an entire 12-hour shift with one mask and one gown. Enterprising neighborhood entrepreneurs, perhaps our employees, were selling our surgical masks at the top of the stairs to the 168th Street subway station for $1 per mask. On March 13, Friday the 13th, cancellation of all elective surgery for the NYP system was announced, in large part to preserve PPE. New York State quickly followed with the same action affecting all hospitals. My naive fantasy that we would avoid anything serious was over. On the eyes of March, which was a Sunday, I sat down to write the first of what became 59, what I called updates to my department. I had two very simple goals. First, to make sense of the exploding morass of confusing information. Second, to prepare my department for the impact of stopping 75% of our normal activity overnight. March 19 was notable for being the first day that the Wuhan epidemic had no new cases. And we clung to that as proof it hadn't really been so bad in the original epicenter. The surges in Italy, Germany, and France were unsettling and our curve was frightening, but no one imagined we would become the epicenter of the world. The next day, we had a 50% increase in new cases in a single day. This slide shows our COVID ICU admissions from mid-March through mid-July. The slope of the curve inside the box illustrates what made this such a frightening time. We couldn't see the rest of the curve yet and projections based on the slope inside the box point to very large numbers in a few weeks. Had we known that average ICU length of stay would turn out to be about two weeks, it would have been even more frightening because of the enormous ICU burden imposed by long lengths of stay. At an urgent leadership meeting on March 20th, the shortage of PPE was shared in stark quantitative terms for the first time, making it clear we could easily run out. The NYP system normally used 4,000 non-N95 masks per day, and consumption was already up to 40,000 per day projected to reach 70 to 100,000 very soon. 
N95 masks were already so scarce that employees were using one mask for as many days as they could stretch it by covering it with another mask and washing it. The prospect of hordes of sick people being treated without adequate protection was suddenly very real, aggravating a vicious cycle of infected healthcare workers transmitting disease and dropping out of the workforce. The update I wrote to my department that day could not disguise how much this alarmed me. I shared the PPE supply facts very specifically. I concluded, so what can we do? Load the sled, check the traces, feed Balto and mush on. Our cargo must reach Nome. Remember that our families, friends and neighbors are scared, idle, out of work and feel impotent. Anyone working in healthcare still enjoys the rapture of action. It's a privilege. We mush on. This update was tweeted and went something approaching viral. It's ironic to me that those six short sentences that received so much attention took about two minutes to write. The message just seemed completely obvious as if what else would anyone say? And I assumed that the Balto diphtheria antitoxin story was well known. The redeployment of all of our faculty and staff to other duties was an early and unrelenting challenge. By March 13th, when elective surgery was stopped, 20% of the ED physicians were already out sick. Nine of my intrepid surgery faculty immediately volunteered to take shifts in the ED. That was just the beginning of the altruistic and fearless response by surgeons that set a high standard for everyone else. Projections based on the new case curve in early March covered a broad range of awfulness. In the worst case scenario, we would need every Columbia MD working in the front lines, regardless of age or specialty training. We would need every remotely capable staff person working in whatever capacity possible to support the front lines. Our planning included reaching a point at which everyone we have was working 24 on 24 off or even 36 on 12 off for as long as necessary. In the beginning, we assumed no one would send us reinforcements because they, they had their own surges to worry about. As it turned out, once it became apparent other areas were relatively spared, we benefited from the generosity of quite a few great institutions who sent ICU nurses and MDs. Thankfully, we peaked well ahead of the worst case scenario. Even so, we had orthopedists, urologists, ophthalmologists, and ENT surgeons working in the ICUs after taking rapid refresher courses. I had administrative assistants and researchers from my department working as transporters in the ED. Many of the older MDs helped the ICUs manage family communications during the long and painful period when no visitors were allowed. Very early during our surge, my general surgery residents organized a surgical workforce activation team or SWAT to take on the myriad minor procedures that accompany support of critically ill patients like placing lines, chest tubes, tracheostomies. They commandeered portable ultrasound machines and stopped go bags full of essentials. SWAT teams worked 12 hour shifts around the clock on call to the ER and the ICU, 
They placed IVs, monitoring lines, dialysis catheters, and most of the new COVID admissions. In the first week, they treated 174 patients, placed 77 arterial lines and 137 central lines. It doesn't get much more frontline than that. Being redeployed was not easy for anyone. I am indescribably proud of the way all of our faculty and staff responded to the crisis. And the Department of Surgery truly led the way. Our experience using operating rooms as ICUs falls under the heading of lessons learned. Converting 75% of our ORs to makeshift ICUs was a completely justifiable act of desperation at the beginning of the surge, when it appeared we would need to triple our ICU capacity. Using ORs for that purpose allowed us to save ventilators by using OR anesthesia machines because ORs are relatively large, they could be reconfigured to accommodate three or even four ICU beds. This did require outfitting each room to maintain negative pressure and at least 12 volume exchanges per hour, which are not insignificant engineering challenges. This was done by installing ductwork in new outer corridor doors and the sterile corridors were converted to mini nursing stations. With astonishing efficiency, we popped up 80 ICU beds in the ORs. And by converting parts of other floors, we more than doubled our ICU capacity in 19 days. That was an amazing feat of engineering and teamwork. However, complications ensued. The staffing plan depended on converting OR nurses to ICU nurses overnight. Ideally, skilled ICU nurses should have been spread evenly across all ICUs to teach and compensate for newly converted OR nurses. Instead, our unionized nursing staff resisted reassignments. Skilled ICU nurses stayed in our pre-existing ICUs and the OR ICUs were staffed almost entirely by completely inexperienced OR nurses. The fantasy that anesthesiology and surgery residents would take up the slack at the nursing level was just that, since the residents had no one above them taking up their slack. Staffing challenges were compounded by the infrastructure challenges. The ORs were physically hard to enter and leave, especially for ancillary staff like housekeeping and respiratory therapy. The doctor-nurse bedside teams were virtually trapped for an entire shift Communication from the makeshift nursing stations to the care teams inside was difficult and there were no easy sight lines. Suction receptacles brimming with COVID sputum stacked up inside the rooms. Within a week or so, the situation was a patient care crisis and it was our first serious internal politics challenge. Suffice to say that vigorous advocacy behind the screen scenes produced better alignment between all parties and the care of the patients improved markedly. As in most conflicts, there was some truth on all sides. Meanwhile, our OR nurses did their very best to learn ICU skills on the fly 
and with lots of help from residents, the work got done while the overlords settled their differences. Little aggregations of heroism like those are what carried us through. The overall toll of the March-April surge was hard to appreciate fully at the time. When the accounting finally came in, we found that 20% of COVID admissions to the Columbia University Medical Center died. 40% of our ICU admissions died. 80% of our ECMO patients died. We were relieved to see that the mortality was the same in pre-existing ICUs and the OR ICUs, although selection may have obscured a difference. We did try to send less sick patients to OR ICUs, but that was not really a very accurate triage in this disease. Two of my faculty told the same story, which must have happened to others. At the start of a 12-hour shift, a patient in one bed died. The bed was filled with another patient who died and was immediately replaced by a third patient, all in one shift. The most tragic part of the experience was seeing so many people die alone during the time no visitors were allowed. Like the initial elective surgery shutdown, the visitor prohibition in March was driven primarily by the shortage of PPE. We had barely enough PPE for staff and patients at that point. The PPE shortage also interfered with expansion of testing since the testers needed PPE. I suspect most surgeons were like me prior to this crisis. I thought nothing of changing masks and other PPE every time I walked in and out of a case. After a few miserly weeks of wearing one or two masks for everything I did, my perspective changed. Even though supplies are back to normal, they are being dispensed centrally, and I'm using one mask and one head covering each day. The precariousness of PPE was one of the most unforgettable surprises in this pandemic. After watching COVID-19 kill almost 2 million people worldwide and 376,000 people in the US, what do I think we learned? I'll mention a few things. Number one, telehealth has an important role in healthcare and it is here to stay. Number two, testing is not a panacea. Number three, very important, just-in-time inventory management is hazardous. Foreign sources will prioritize their own needs over ours. Domestic sources are highly interconnected at various levels, raw materials, manufacturing, delivery, in ways that are impacted by shutting down the economy. We need reliable domestic sources and reasonable stockpiles of essential equipment. Fourth, our society is a long way from recognizing the price of completely unlimited health care for all. Fifth, honest, frequent communication is absolutely essential. And finally, sixth, what ordinary people will do for unselfish goals is amazing and humbling. Now, preparing this talk, I found some interesting predictions I had made in another talk that I gave in July. So I looked at those and I wanted to see how I did. First, 
I predicted no significant resurgence. I was wrong about that. However, the slope of the curve was 11 times steeper in March, April. Slide 10 shows the latest period. In March, April, it was 7.7 .7 new ICU cases versus 0.7 now, average new case per day. Second, I predicted we would have at least some natural immunity and a vaccine within one year. I was right on both counts. Our vaccine remarkable, our vaccine rollout is going remarkably well, all things considered. Third, I said the US economy would recover within one year. Wrong again, I'm afraid. Fourth, I thought New York City would recover. But I did mention that since the social unrest, I was less confident how soon that might be. And I have to say the jury is still out on that one. And finally, I said then, I say now, the scarcity of effective leadership was very depressing. That might be my most enduring prediction. Thank you all for the honor of the Thomas Ferguson Lecture. Good afternoon. So it was with immense pleasure that I accepted the invitation from Professor Diarani to participate in the prestigious Ferguson Lecture at this virtual SDS annual meeting. So when Professor Diarani suggested the title of the lecture, Personal Reflection on COVID, I must confess that I've thought a lot about what to convey in this uh, lecture. So personal means something related to myself, myself primarily as my person, but also myself as an Italian thoracic surgeon, as a European and a member of the European Union, and also as a representative of the leadership of the largest society of general thoracic surgery in the world, the ESDS. And COVID-19 has been the mark of 2020 and possibly a durable mark for many years to come. We have started to familiarize with it in late February last year in Europe and slowly it has progressively took all the aspects of our lives, transforming forever the way we related, we behaved, we acted, we worked, we communicated so far. So in the next 20 minutes, I will try to give you a personal European-based, surgically oriented reflection on some personal and cultural aspects of this pandemic. I will structure my presentation focusing on three keywords with the help of some suggested readings on the topic. The first keyword is history. My Roman ancestors used to say that historia magistra vitae, that means history is the teacher of our life. And the same author, Marcus Tullius Cicero, the famous Roman orator, used to say that we study history not to be clever in another time, but to be wise always. And this is the first book I suggest. I want, it's a wonderful textbook, which takes the reader on a fascinating journey through time and space and illustrating how our disciplines evolved from the art of religious healing to the speculative medis, medical discussion to the Italian Renaissance, to the Enlightenment, to the scientific revolution, 
So common to all times in human history is the disease from microbes, which profoundly mark our civilization, sometimes more than famous conquerors or epic wars. Microbes were responsible for collapse of empires, changes in human behavior, and major leaps forward in medicine, art, and science. And the knowledge of this pandemic is important to understand the present times. A plague epidemic struck the Athenian army and Athens at the time of Pericles. 25% of the Athenian population died at that time and the plague had a major impact on the future of Athens. Another plague outbreak hit the Roman Byzantine Empire and killed 40% of the population of Byzantium. The plague in the form of Black Death hit Europe in the 14th century. The European population dropped from 80 to 30 million people and the Italian city Florence lost 60% of its population. And recurrence of plague hit Europe again in the 16th century. London, Spain, and Italy were hit. And today, still today, WHO reports uh, around 600 deaths plague every year, in, mostly in Africa. Another great pandemic in human history was due to smallpox. Smallpox epidemics, and uh, probably influenza also, was the major responsible for the decimation of the Native American people when the European invaders came in. And then the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu was caused by the H1N1A influenza type and hit US, Europe, and China in three different waves from 1918 to 1920. Mostly young people died. The mortality rate was 10 to 20% and the total estimated deaths were up to 50 million people. And some pictures of that period show that they used the same preventive measures we are taking today, including the cap, you see. And these are the latest figures on the COVID pandemic. You see how Europe is badly hit. So now we uh, survived the first wave. Now we are in the second wave. And now in the, in the next week, we are expecting the third wave. And so this is my first reflection that can be summarized in this concept. You have to learn from previous experience. If we put things in perspective, and if we see the span of the human history, we can now, we can better deal with the microbes and viruses. We are stronger in technology. We are more united through global interconnection. We are better prepared. So we have more arrows in our quiver. So let's be optimistic about that. And the second word I chose for my personal reflections is leadership. And in particular, it is about the role of the leadership in these times, in these COVID times. And the COVID pandemic has been a formidable test for all nation leaders. And each of them reacted differently, sometimes in success, sometimes with errors. Europe, my continent, as a union, adopted very good measures in terms of economic support to the EU members in 2020, in July, the European Council agreed to a massive fund of more than 700 billion euro, the next generation EU, to support members, states hit by the pandemic. And this, to me, was an unprecedented sign of cohesion in Europe and a proof of an effective leadership. 
And when we look at the different leadership styles adopted from some, by some European nation leaders in the first phase of the COVID, uh, we see that there have been different leadership styles from the wartime leadership from France to the calmer, scientific-wise, compassionate leadership in Germany to the late inaction, grinding rhetoric, communication leadership in Italy. If you look at our leadership, I mean the medical leadership, the leadership within our hospitals, within our services, within our surgical units, I think that my personal reflection is that we did much better than our politicians, adopting a strategy based on global interconnection, exchange of information, uh, policies, and so on. And in this respect, I would like to praise STS for the initiative who took place in May uh, called the Global Summit on reactivating cardiothoracic surgery programs. So experts from the four continents met to share their experiences about our specialists, especially at the time of the COVID. I think that this is an, another extraordinary example of an effective leadership. In this article from the New England Journal of Medicine group, um, the authors uh, suggest that we have to move from a the, uh, you, the old legacy, the old uh, leadership, which is a legacy leadership towards a learning leadership. A learning leadership means uh, uh, a leadership that seeks to expand, to learn, to grow from failures and to use an empathic approach. And one of the most challenging issues in our specialty during this pandemic has been the reduction of the elective surgical procedures with a corresponding delay in diagnosis, staging, and treatment of uh, patients with thoracic malignancies. Many publications and guidelines have been published addressing this topic, warning against the risk of an increased cancer-related mortality due to this delay in diagnosis and also treatment. In my country, in Italy, most hospital hubs uh, luckily maintain the activity and also in my region, in the Piedmont, in the northwest of Italy, uh, our hospital maintained the overall volume of the intervention for oncologic solid tumors, as published in this article. And if you look at Europe, we recently published results of uh, uh, <clears throat> the safety of uh, thoracic malignancy surgery during the COVID-19 pandemic from five high volume European centers plus one center in Canada. And out of more than 700 patients, we uh, still had only 0.1% of COVID-related mortality. And the six centers adopted different policies in the restructuring of the internal organizations. And the conclusion of the authors is that it is possible to maintain the surgical oncologic activity with a high level of safety, even during this pandemic. And I think that this is a very important message. And speaking about leadership, I think that uh, I would like to also to mention the fundamental role of our societies in this period. All the major societies, cardiothoracic society, the ERTTS, the AATS, the STS, and also the ESTS had to confront with new scenarios and they reacted promptly and effectively, in my opinion. As for ESTS, the my society, when the first signals of the pandemic started to emerge in February, the ESTS leadership made important choices 
included the cancellation of the physical annual meeting in The Hague, the Netherlands, the organization of a two-day virtual event in October, the freeze of all the leadership position for an additional year, and also an extraordinary effort was made to maintain our educational offer and by converting all the physical courses into webinar or online courses. And also ESTS made a recent very courageous decision to hold also the 2021 meeting virtually. And I think this is a, a wise decision and so well taken well in advance. And so this is my second reflection about leadership. Leadership is important in this time at any level, national level, hospital-based level, and also self-leadership, self-responsibility. As every sailor knows, uh, it is, I mean, leadership is fundamental for any good outcome in any sailing adventure, like the famous Captain Shackleton in his Antarctic adventure with the ship Endeavour. And we are all in the same boat now in this pandemic, sailing in rough and uncharted seas. And these are my suggested readings about leadership that I would recommend to you. And the third reflections deals with the single most effective measure that we have to get out of this nightmare, the vaccine. We know from history that vaccines changed the epidemiology of many microbial diseases. The first vaccine against smallpox was inoculated in an eight-year-old boy from, uh, by the uh, English Dr. Edward Jenner, and thanks to the vaccine, after 200 years, smallpox has been declared eradicated. But despite the good result, as you can see here, how was the reaction to the vaccine at the time of Jenner? And also religious leaders at that time claimed that vaccine was immoral and against God because it was a mortal sin to stop a disease that God has created. And as you see, something very similar is occurring today after 200 years, and the no vaccine movement has grown to a disturbing level. This is an interesting editorial from Lancet, reporting from the Center for the Counteractive Digital Hate, reporting that 31 million people follow anti-vaccine groups with 17 million people subscribing to similar accounts in faith on YouTube. And these are the total doses of COVID-19 vaccine administered so far. So you see that more than 30 million doses, 30 million people have already been vaccinated, which are good numbers. And I'm very confident that in the future, this number will increase considerably. So the considerations about fake news, the argument against vaccines, and how people react to this infodemics pandemic. Uh, take me to the last keyword of my lecture, which is critical thinking. And the suggested book is a famous book from a Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, which is the thinking fast and slow. Kahneman explains how our mind tends to use shortcuts, oversimplifications to make judgments. This is what he calls exaggerated emotional coherence. And also another mechanism is the confirmation bias, very interesting, which is the tendency for people to agree with any information supporting their previously held beliefs, as well as to accept whatever information is suggested to them. The narcissistic feeling 
that we can all be scientists simply by internet Googling make us dispute the opinion of experts in this field. We very often distrust the experts because we have found on internet an alternative thesis which better matched with our health belief. So a couple of final reflections on COVID pandemic. The first reflection is the profound impact on mental health that this pandemic has triggered. So one day we suddenly woke and we found ourselves living in a very different world. Physical contacts, relationships, free movements across national, international borders, even, against, even in our own country, uh, were wiped out with major limitations to our freedom. So curfew, bans on dining out, and any social event. At least in Italy, as you can see here, the first lockdown in March was easily accepted and people were seen singing and playing and on balconies, draping the national flag in a sort of lightning war against COVID, which was supposed to last a few months. But unfortunately, the second wave occurred in autumn and the second lockdown is a completely different story. Now people are tired, angry, stressed, aggressive, with the prospect of many months ahead until summer. Anxiety, depression followed among the general population and the healthcare personnel. So in this meta-analysis published on British Medical Journal from recent literature, it is a, this is the psychological impact on general population and healthcare workers of recent virus outbreaks indicates that uh, the risk of psychological distress and post-traumatic stress syndrome is very high among healthcare personnel. Young and less experienced people are at higher risk. So the only way that we have is a clear communication, adequate rest and access to psychological support. And this is a recent report from the Department of Psychology at my university in Torino um, on a population of 2000 general practitioners from my region and 33% of the survey general practitioners presented significant post-traumatic stress disorders, 75% and 37% report anxiety and depression. So we as a leader in our services are committed to take any necessary preventive measure to counteract mental problems in our staff and to exercise an effective, selfless and empathic leadership. My final words are for the future. What we should have learned, and I really hope that everyone has learned, including our world leaders, is that our health, our economics, our well-being is strictly linked to the environment and to all the living organisms in our planet. During the March lockdown, we saw clearer skies, bluer seas, cleaner cities all over the world, the reduction of airplane traffic, the shutdown of the mass tourism, all contribute to a better preservation of our planet. And the latest report from the United Nations Environment Program indicates that in 2019, the greenhouse gas hit a very new high. A only 7% drop is expected in 2020 due to the shutdowns. This is not much, but we can still learn from the COVID experience. The COVID pandemic has clearly showed us that our and other living species preservation usually depend on how we preserve our planet. We have learned 
that we can live without traveling too much for work and leisure, that we can productively work from home without congesting our cities with cars, that we can use less polluting means of transportation for short to middle range travels. I really hope that this consideration will be on the agenda of our nation leaders when everything is bad. So to summarize, I link my personal reflections from COVID to three keywords and associated context. History can teach us to put things in the correct perspective. So learn history. An effective and modern leadership can steer mankind out of these uncharted waters. A critical thinking can represent the best personal way that we have to live a positive life in these difficult periods. So always think critically. To conclude, COVID-19 has been a symptom and a consequence of an interconnected and interdependent war. COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted this world. The emergency period has forced us to close borders, to limit our freedom, to separate ourselves from the embrace of our friends and of our beloved ones. Only through a global collaboration and a powerful personal effort will we be able to build another much better interconnected, much better interdependent world, but now more sustainable and more integrated in our environment. And thank you very much for the opportunity to present this lecture. Well, uh, hello, everybody. This is Alan Siho from Hong Kong. And of course, I'd like to thank the STS very, very much for giving me this opportunity to share with you some personal reflections on what's really been a really tough year for all of us around the world. Uh, so I'm really theming this particular talk, the four seasons of a pandemic. And as you'll see, uh, over the past uh, uh, year in Hong Kong, we really have been through four seasons of really uh, tough times. So this story really begins in mid-December in Wuhan, a name that everybody will recognize today. And this particular date was actually a date of the annual meeting of the Chinese Society of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery. And I was there along with a contingent of surgeons from the STS representing the STS at this meeting. And while we were there in Wuhan, well, everything looked absolutely normal. Everybody was going out, having a good time. Uh, there was no hint amongst anyone that anything was really going wrong. A couple of weeks later, everything changed. In Hong Kong, in early uh, January, we already realized that something was amiss. Flash forward one year, 12 months later, four seasons later, we have over 9,000 cases confirmed in Hong Kong. Over 150 people have died in Hong Kong. And these are the lessons we've learned over these four seasons of this pandemic. We'll begin, of course, in January with spring. And we had our first wave. It's more of a ripple than a wave. You can see here is a quite a small little wave. And it was the first time of this COVID in Hong Kong. Now, this was early January very early on, just a couple of weeks after we returned from Wuhan, and already in the news in Hong Kong, in the first week or two, we already saw signs that something was wrong. A lot of people, not just us doctors, the general public just watching regular news, knew that something was amiss. Because in China, 
we on, they only had a few dozen cases back then, but they already sequenced the DNA of this new virus. Everybody was aware. And we started getting into action already in early and mid-January in Hong Kong. And the reason we were so um, uh, sensitive to this matter was because, of course, SARS in 2003. Back 17 years ago in Hong Kong, we were the epicenter of the first coronavirus epidemic. Uh, Hong Kong population seven and a half million, but we had over 20% of the global total of confirmed cases of SARS and over 35% of the global total of deaths. We had more people dying of SARS in 2003 than we have so far died of COVID in 2020. Back then, uh, as a, a middle-grade surgeon, I was already at the front line treating SARS. Some of my own colleagues and teammates ended up in ICU. Uh, I treated a lot of fellow healthcare workers, doctors and nurses who ended up with SARS. Some of them unfortunately died. So this really left an indelible mark and we had a really tough experience. We got some publications out of uh, our SARS experience, but it was a really tough time for all of us. And we learned some uh, lessons that we carried on. Ever since 2003, anybody who's come to Hong Kong will notice these things. You go into any elevator, and outside the elevators, there are always hand disinfectants. You go into the elevator, the buttons are covered with a sheet of plastic, which is sterilized with disinfectant every hour. Everybody in Hong Kong knows what the ratio 1 to 99 means. It means this is the ratio you dilute your bleach to pour down the drains in your toilets to make sure that aerosolized vi uh, virus particles doesn't backflow into your own toilets in your apartments. And this is standard. Everybody in Hong Kong has been doing this since 2003. So as soon as this pandemic uh, uh, hit, we all knew what to do. So immediately public areas uh, shopping centers, they set up temperature uh, uh, stations to monitor temperature going in and out of office buildings, shopping centers. There were more hand sanitizing stations already. This is back in January. And of course, you get more cleaning ladies cleaning uh, all the public areas. At home, this is where things really got uh, important, is Every individual family started stockpiling cleaning equipment. This is my own home. Already, before we had our first case confirmed in Hong Kong, everybody was already uh, bringing in cleaning equipment. We were trying to get masks. All the hospitals immediately locked up their N95 mask supply because they knew staff would start stealing them. Uh, so we bought our own masks. We stockpiled them home. On the left here, you see it, my home. As soon as you walk in the door, we already set up a cleaning station. So we uh, disinfected ourselves. We took off our outer clothing, so we left it at doorside for disinfection before we stepped any further in home. And this is all done very, very early on. And you realize uh, at this time in January, uh, we were still going out. I think uh, at this time, even before we had our first case confirmed in Hong Kong, we went to the uh, annual meeting uh, of the STS in New Orleans. Now, when I was there, of course, I was uh, sent on a mission by my wife. And she says, when you get to America, make sure you get more hand sanitizers and masks because they're running out in Hong Kong, even before we had our first cases. And so I was, uh, if, you, if you miss me at the meeting, it's because I was out at CVS and Walgreens buying uh, hand sanitizers. I couldn't buy masks anymore because a lot of Hong Kong people already went to places like New Orleans to 
sweep up all the mass it could find. Uh, we went to a meeting of the ASCVTS, the Asian Society in uh, Chiang Mai, Thailand in early February. And I realized that I was the only guy walking around with hand sanitizer and wearing masks. And you can see my colleagues and friends are already mocking me and taking, a, uh, taking the mick out of me for uh, wearing a mask. But we knew in Hong Kong, we knew what we were in for. And lo and behold, by late January, we started getting our first couple of cases. And you notice a week after our first confirmed case in Hong Kong, we already were recommending working at home officially. We were closing schools after just a few cases. And we were closing things like public museums and public libraries. And this was the response in Hong Kong, even just after first handful of cases. Uh, the healthcare system in Hong Kong after 2003 it was also well geared towards the recurrence of any coronavirus epidemic. So in Hong Kong, we have a dual healthcare system, the public sector and the private sector. The public sector uh, under the government actually already set up a specific uh, uh, isolation units in every hospital. There was a hospital dedicated for infectious diseases as COVID uh, became a thing. We actually uh, used a convention center as a sort of makeshift quarantine hospital uh, for the influx of cases. And what this meant was that if you had COVID or suspected COVID, you could be treated in the public sector. And that left the private sector uh, free to uh, impose a sort of a COVID-free zone so that anybody with suspected contact with COVID weren't allowed into private hospitals. And that allowed people with other diseases, cancers, heart disease, to still be treated near normally throughout uh, the entire year in Hong Kong in the private setting. Even in the public setting, we managed to uh, flatten the curve so well that uh, even the public hospitals were by and large able to run more or less normal services. Of course, that doesn't mean that uh, everything was 100% normal. In private hospitals, everybody going in and out, including all healthcare staff, were uh, uh, forced to uh, declare their own uh, uh, contacts of COVID. Uh, we were uh, uh, frequently checked. And as I go into work every single morning, there would be security staff at the doors, at the lifts, checking my temperature, making sure everybody was as clean as they could possibly be. And that became a norm. It worked very well and very soon our uh, curve flattened very well. And so even by early March, we were able to travel out to other meetings. So this was my last trip of uh, 2020. And this is early March. And you notice that this trip, I actually went to Switzerland and I also went to Chicago for another STS meeting. And at that time, actually, um, I think some of our, our European and American friends were worried that, oh, this guy's coming from Asia. To be honest, uh, my, my family and friends in Hong Kong were much, much more worried about me bringing back COVID than of me bringing COVID out to those countries, because by that time, Hong Kong had done very well. And it was very striking to me as I was walking around uh, downtown Zurich here, here on, the, on, on the left, I posted this in, on Facebook. And I noticed that although Hong Kong uh, had a similar population to the, all of Switzerland, we had far fewer cases in, in Switzerland. And yet in downtown Zurich, I was the only guy walking around with a mask. Everybody else in downtown Zurich was walking around freely, no social distancing, no mask. And I was thinking, gosh, this doesn't look right. On that particular trip, I came back to Hong Kong. This is a scene in Hong Kong airport. And look at the contrast. As soon as you land in Hong Kong, everybody you see was wearing a mask. And as soon as you leave the arrivals hall, you'll notice everywhere there's hand sanitizers. Uh, and in the arrivals hall, nobody. It was empty because 
everybody already knew the importance of maintaining some social distancing. We had social distancing before social distancing became a recognized term. So everybody just stayed at home and we managed to do quite well for ourselves. And this is the result. So uh, uh, this is what we really mean by flattening the curve. And if you notice, Hong Kong actually led the world in terms of our early response to COVID. And we managed to get things well under control compared to almost anywhere else in the world. Of course, this also led to the feeling that we might be victims of our own success. When I gave uh, one of these early talks and uh, wrote a sort of a short article for the SDS, again, in mid-March, I already recognized that because of the success in Hong Kong, we were actually going to be attracting trouble as people recognize Hong Kong as a sort of safe haven from this global epidemic, we are going to bring a second wave of imported infections. And this was a prediction that sadly came true in the summer. And in the summer, or early summer, we had, lo and behold, our second wave. Now, the second wave, as I said, I could easily predict. And the reason I predicted that was because I myself studied in the UK in Cambridge when I was a university student. And I was not alone. Many people in Hong Kong go abroad for studies, for college, for secondary and tertiary education, because Hong Kong is small. And the instinct of most Chinese families is that when there's trouble, the family gets back together. So back in March, you know, as people recognized that Hong Kong was doing, hey, pretty good, families were bringing in family members from across the world that were flying back in from places that by now were actually having troubles with COVID of their own, such as the UK. And if you break it down, this is what it looks like. These are the imported cases coming back into Hong Kong from around the world. And there on the left of this graph, there are a few countries that stick out. And let's pull it up. Number one is the UK. Because of our old colonial connections, a lot of people from Hong Kong still go to the UK for university. And these are the kids, the young adults coming back into Hong Kong, bringing in COVID from the UK. The USA is there as well. You notice there's a group from the India and Pakistan because uh, we do have a significant South Asian minority in Hong Kong. And again, they recognize that their own uh, countries were not as safe as Hong Kong and they were coming back in. The Philippines and Indonesia, that's where we have a lot of our domestic workers and maids uh, working in Hong Kong. They come from these places and that's them also unfortunately bringing back some of this virus. And if you actually follow the, the, um, the, the contact tracing, this is what we noticed. Uh, the biggest actually cluster of cases in Hong Kong in our second wave was the bar and band cluster. Because these students, especially coming back from uh, UK, from the USA, they're college students. So 17 years ago during SARS, they were infants. They had no idea what we actually had to go through 17 years ago. And when they came back from the Western countries and uh, they had they want to have a nice time in Hong Kong, they went out to bars and bands and they start spreading uh, these um, uh, uh, the virus in Hong Kong, unfortunately, locally. So 
that's a sad consequence. And uh, very soon, Hong Kong, of course, we actually had to have more stricter quarantine rules. In fact, anybody coming into Hong Kong, home quarantine, and you had to wear a little band, uh, it's almost like a, a house arrest. You put a little band on yourself to make sure that uh, you, they can track you if you're going out. Uh, and they do enforce this uh, quarantine very strictly. And in fact, there were a few cases, people breaking their quarantines, and we actually had to put them in jail. It was strict, but it was necessary. And um, we started putting in some uh, uh, stricter 14-day quarantine rules, uh, some nightclubs, karaoke, these bars and band uh, locations were actually uh, temporarily closed. And by and large, that also worked fairly well. And uh, our second wave, thankfully, started uh, uh, becoming overcome. During this time, we actually had, this was when we really had to make adjustments to our lifestyle. Uh, I myself, I'd rediscovered my passion for French cheese washed down with Diet Coke. I also uh, learned to really, really uh, dig these uh, exotic Japanese cup noodles to a huge degree, to an unhealthy degree. It was also the time when I got used to doing Zoom, like all of you. I think we're all masters at Zoom nowadays. We did so many conferences on Zoom through the summer in Hong Kong. And because of our good early experience, I was invited, thankfully, I'm very grateful for this, to speak about our COVID experience around the world via Zoom. And that was a great experience for me. And I'm very grateful for that. Uh, within Asia, uh, we co collected our Asian experience and the Asian Society for Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery. We issued some recommendations of how to provide thoracic cancer surgery services during this pandemic, and I hope that helps some of our Asian colleagues. So by and large, I think summer was a good time for Hong Kong. We had our little wave, but we overcame that. And you can see through the middle of summer, we actually had a completely, well, near completely COVID-free summer, and that was happy. But this was sort of the um, uh, sort of uh, the lull before the real storm hit in autumn, and you can see that third wave hit us like a tornado. It was really, really bad, uh, bigger than the first two waves combined. Now, if you look at the contract tracing, this is the second wave again. It was a bar and band cluster, and if you look at the contract tracing for the third wave, it was a different picture. We had this container terminal cluster, container terminal. What's this all about? Well. Hong Kong is a city sort of a region, and uh, we're not self-sufficient. So we need imports from around the world, from mainland China, from around the world, for our basic necessities, even things like food. So we couldn't steal off Hong Kong completely from the outside world. And people coming into Hong Kong could still, uh, turns out, bring the virus. So we did have our 14-day home quarantine, but sadly, there were exceptions. So these seafarers, uh, these merchant uh, Navy crew, air crew, pilots and stewardesses and, and all, all the people who have to fly, they were exempt from the quarantine. We thought we needed them, but we didn't realize that these people were actually sneaking in COVID through the back door. And when they came in without quarantine, they were going out into our environment. Hong Kong, as you know, is a notoriously crowded city and they're going into these elevators and they were spreading virus. And that led to our third wave. And by this time, okay, there were gaps in, in, our, in our defenses. We really had to crack down. And it was really only in the third wave that we started having more and more restrictions. It's shocking, but it was only in uh, July, it seems, that the government finally said, hey, everybody has to wear a mask. We, everybody in Hong Kong was already wearing a mask. But by the third wave, I think it became 
law that you had to do it. Uh, restaurants had to close after 6 p.m. Uh, for a short while, and the gatherings were, were limited. You could still go out, but uh, the government recommended, okay, only two people together at one time. You can see the cityscape in Hong Kong, uh, not what you'd expect. The streets were getting quiet by this time. And the skies were getting clearer because there was less traffic. And by and large, it worked. It worked quite well. And so even by August, very soon, we were, our, our case numbers went down from 100 a day to 50 a day to 20 a day. And by uh, September already, we were opening things up again. People were going back to school. My son was going back to school. Uh, restaurants were open again. Even Disneyland was opening again. That was a happy time. We could go to Disneyland in Hong Kong. Uh, the difference there was that you see all these tourists in Disneyland, uh, whereas in the past, there were mainly mainland Chinese tourists, tourists from around Asia. Now in Disneyland, everybody you see in there was from Hong Kong. The main effect uh, of the pandemic in Hong Kong was we couldn't go out. And if you're stuck in one city for a whole year, it gets pretty boring. Uh, you'll go anywhere. You'll even go to your own Disneyland uh, for the weekend because it gets so boring. And by and large, yeah, that, that was pretty cool. It was good to, 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 to get back to work, get back to what well, we were always at work, but getting back to a fairly normal social life. And that's when I got worried again. So you'll see here in early October, uh, this is me going to work, and I posted this on Facebook in early October. I took a picture and I said, wow, look at all these people. Is this how the fourth wave begins? And sadly, this is another one of my predictions that came true. Because as we moved on into winter, sure as hell, we had our fourth wave. And it was a pretty big wave, too. And this particular wave, well, if you look at the social tracing, and this is the third wave. It was the container terminals, you know, the seamen and the air crew coming back in. But the fourth wave, this will knock your socks off. A huge super spreading event. The so-called dancing and singing cluster. And if you see who was the amongst the first people in the singing and dancing cluster, get it? It was a 75-year-old woman. What on earth is going on here? What is the singing and dancing cluster? And Hong Kong, we actually did a very good job at uh, uh, contact tracing. And it turns out it was this. We had desperate housewives of Hong Kong. So a lot of the middle-aged or um, uh, slightly older uh, housewives in Hong Kong, they were simply bored. It was a whole year of the COVID. And they just wanted to go out and dance. Girls want to have fun. And uh, sorry if it sounds sexist, it wasn't meant to be, but it was true. I mean, they, they went out to, to dance clubs and uh, dance events in huge clusters. They weren't wearing a mask and they were dancing with dance instructors or so-called professional dance partners who uh, sometimes they were even shipped in over the border from mainland China by speedboat. So virile young men engaging in dancing without masks, sometimes in other social activities, which I won't go into, and they spread the virus. It's sad but true. And uh, when these housewives went home, they spread it to their own families and communities, even their own kids in some cases. And so we had to shut down the schools again. And this time in the fourth wave, the government actually had to implement even stricter uh, uh, measures. So um, the travel bubble that we were uh, talking about with Singapore, that was immediately put on hold. There was more tighter social distancing rules. We could still go to work. We could still go out uh, you know, shopping and things. But again, the restaurant restrictions after 6 p.m. were put back into place. A lot of the public areas, uh, gyms, swimming pools, um, uh, beauty parlors, et cetera, those again, were closed. 
Did it work? Yes, it did. So if you remember our picture in early October, this is early October. By uh, December, same place, same scene, from, taken from my same phone, and you can see immediately the difference. The crowds were gone. Uh, you still get people uh, going out. So thankfully in Hong Kong, we never had a full lockdown. We never had that. You can, we could always go out to the supermarket. I could still go to work every day normally. But by and large, people uh, knew about the social restrictions. They didn't want to go anyway. Nobody wanted to catch the virus. And gradually, we're getting some semblance of control. So you can see it in our fourth wave. Even by Christmas time, it was sort of a rounding the, the, the peak already. And as we're here in uh, January, uh, we're nearing the end of this fourth wave, hopefully. Uh, during this time, of course, everybody had to make adjustments. In the fourth wave, I started uh, testing myself uh, with the rapid test for COVID every week. Uh, I'm negative, so you can, uh, <laughs> you can rest assured, but uh, we all had to make some adjustments. It's been a tough 12 months. So what are the final lessons uh, I think we can share from these uh, four seasons of COVID in Hong Kong? I think in spring, what it really showed me was that experience counts. When you've already had the experience like we had in 2003 of SARS, as soon as you see even an inkling of what might be going on, the reflex kicks in. And if you have good reflex self-defense mechanisms in place, you can overcome that uh, new epidemic fairly quickly and actually fairly effectively, as you saw, we only had a little ripple in the first wave. In summer, what that taught us was it's possible to build a safe haven for yourself within a city like Hong Kong. We build up our walls, but ultimately no wall is ever perfect. And there will always be people bringing the virus back in. And the lesson that taught me personally was that no matter how much you protect yourself, in a pandemic situation, you are never totally safe until the entire world is cured of this disease. There's always that uh, external threat. So this is something we all have to face together. Uh, it's not something that just a virus, uh, sorry, a vaccine or, or some sort of miracle cure is going to help you with. Uh, we really need to get through this across the world. Everybody has to be safe before you yourself is safe. What the autumn uh, uh, third wave actually showed me was that no matter how well you do all that, gaps and complacency will exist. It's possible to overcome the third wave and complacency, but you will need increasingly strict rules uh, um, in place in order to bat that down. It's, it's increasingly tough. And ultimately, no matter how you slog through this battle, there will come a winter, uh, a depressing time when even the strongest of us will fatigue, will grow tired, will look for outlets, things like singing and dancing in clubs, and even the strongest will wilt. And that's when the COVID virus or any future pandemic will see its chance to hit you again. Now, one thing, the trend over these four, four months is this, I think early on, I think in, in, uh, in the pandemic, it was up to the individual from past experience, individual discipline got us through the first wave. We looked after ourselves, we stockpiled on masks and, and we kept social distancing. But as time went on, as you see here, we gradually get com become complacent and we gradually fatigue. And as you do, when these weaknesses develop, that's when you need good leadership. And at least in Hong Kong, I'm very grateful that the government recognized that and they came up with increasing steps, increasingly strict measures to make up for the 
declining levels of individual responsibility. And by and large, that was necessary. I hope that uh, going into 2021, things will get better. But as of four seasons of a year, this will return. I think the next epidemic is only a matter of time. And hopefully the message I think for the rest of the world is if you meet, meet the next epidemic, you will already have the experience and the spring for you will be a reflex in action. Hopefully we can uh, meet the next epidemic more quickly and more effectively. And it's something we need to prepare for. So thank you very much.